Hello and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewanfo, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. We are going to start with the paper of yours, The Legal Empowerment of the Poor, Access to Justice. Uh, let me start by asking, uh, why this paper? Why did you decide to prepare this paper? Well, you know, at a certain point in time, the United Nations set up a commission on the legal empowerment of the poor. Basically, what uh, they had said was, uh, problems of poverty are based on the legal system and therefore we need to resolve that. So at that time, uh, the famous uh, Peruvian economist um, and um, the former US Secretary of State, both of them became the commission members and they had selected so a few African countries to be a test case to promote the legal empowerment of the poor. And uh, one of them, the projects was uh, one thing that I, I, that I was leading. So the main focus of the legal empowerment of the poor had four components. Uh, one of them is access to justice, that the poor have access to justice. Uh, the second thing is property rights. The third area is labor rights. And the fourth area is entrepreneurship rights. Uh, these are basically the missing elements in developing a poverty-free world and a poverty-free continent. So to this end, uh, we had had specific questions and uh, we undertook research in the four areas, especially in Ethiopia. And this paper is only one of them, that is, access to justice. We have three other papers that have been developed in this arena. And I think the most important thing in this is most of Africa's legal regimes have been copied from colonial countries, uh, basically uh, the UK, France, or probably Portugal. And therefore, from the philosophy of law, when we look at jurisprudence, Law must reflect society's ambitions, society's behavior, social interactions, and of course, society's beliefs. But these legal regimes were superimposed on African communities that didn't have the same social background as the laws that were made in Europe. The second thing, Africa had communities and association life associational life before the Renaissance in Europe. And people have adopted various legal regimes that control the social life in Africa in different communities. For example, in the Ethiopian case, we found the Gada system, the Baito system, and other systems in which communities still regulate their own activities through them. Uh, since most of the legal regimes that have been introduced after uh, probably Second World War are not even in place for most people. Uh, the courts that you see in Africa, you find them in the capital cities or in major towns. Otherwise, the rural areas are completely devoid of 
any kind of law enforcement, except that you have the military to look after the borders of the country. But uh, we don't have this kind of organized courts, organized law enforcement in, 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 the, in the rural areas. And much of Africa's governments don't have any control over their rural areas anyway. So what's, what was important was to look into how access to justice could be delivered to the majority of the poor people. And in this case, we saw what are the potential for reviewing our legal regimes using sociological and anthropological studies that would inform the kind of laws that we're going to have in our penal and civil courts. So this is the background for the whole thing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, like I was uh, just uh, trying to um, allude to, this is a very important conversation. And of course, in the course of the conversation, I'm going to be touching different area. Uh, but just now, before I, I even move uh, beyond this, um, this this paper, because I see it to be a very important paper, this one that you have written, uh, as it deals with law uh, and also the research that you have carried out. I, I'm trying to understand, if you were to say this is the central message of this paper, what would you call it? Well, one thing is for sure, you know, the legal regimes that we have in Africa today don't support the poor. In fact, the poor are the victims of uh, the legal regimes we have. We hear about land grabs in Africa, huge amounts of land are taken, agricultural land is being taken by uh, different corporations from abroad. Uh, we hear about building of dams, building of roads, building of uh, electric networks that go through indigenous people's lands and these have no benefits to the local people that are being displaced because of these development projects. And I think no major work has been done so far in Africa to this effect. We have more than 15 million indigenous people in Africa and all these infrastructure projects that are being built have not taken care of the needs and aspirations of those people. Of course, development has to happen. There is no question about it. But the point is, what are these people who are displaced from their own communities, from their own cultures, going to happen to them? Are they going to have alternative lands? Are, going to, are they going to benefit from these development initiatives? Even in countries where you have minerals, like oil, diamonds, copper, and other things, local people have never been the beneficiaries of this. And therefore, even if local people want to complain to the legal authorities, they don't have any way of doing this. Now, for one, much of the legal work in globally needs a special expertise of what you call lawyers, who are very expensive even to hire. The second thing is all these rural communities in Africa might not even have the knowledge of how to go to court, how to find a lawyer, and how to pay them. So the central message is empowering the poor in a legal way means creating a situation in which the poor can have access to, to justice, be it through traditional forms of justice or be it through other forms of justice where the poor can actually afford and access justice to maintain their benefits from any development initiatives that takes place 
or from any development initiative that the government has undertaken or, or will be undertaking on the side of the poor. So the central message is having the poor to have access to justice. Okay, now that is about that for now from the book. Now I'm going to uh, pretend I don't even understand what is meant by the rule of law. Maybe we are going to start from there. When people say rule of law, what are we even talking about to start with? Well, you know, when you talk about the rule of law orthodoxy, there are um, different kinds of rules that are developed in nations now. Uh, you have what you call the constitution, which is the upper hand law of a nation where the Bill of Rights, that is the rights of every human being within that nation uh, could exercise, uh, which are an important part of it, and of course, which defines the overall governance regime in any given country. The constitution is supposed to be written by the population at large, unless of course, like what African leaders do, they will have always a referendum to change only one aspect of the constitution, and that is to prolong their terms, you know, third term, fourth term, and everything. Uh, and this has resulted in <clears throat> different kinds of violence, including military coup d'etats and counter coup d'etats, as we have recently seen in Mali and Guinea. Guinea. Uh, the second set of rules is the rules that are made by the what you call House of Representatives or parliaments. Uh, this House of Representatives or Parliaments are supposed to be elected by the people directly, and therefore they make legislation and acts of Parliament that would regulate society. The third areas are what you call directives that are authored by the Council of Ministers. These directives are there to interpret what the legislature or Parliament has made into an act. But most often, the executive has broad powers in trying to redefine what the legislative acts are, sometimes contrary to the legislative act. And it has tremendous amount of leverage in terms of expanding its power. An ideal democracy would have an executive, which is running the country's affairs, a legislator, which is a lawmaking body, and the judiciary, which interprets the law. But definitely the executive is always the most powerful uh, trying to suspend the work or append the work of the judiciary and the work of the legislator. So the rule of law is basically adhering to the terms and conditions of the constitution, legislated acts, and directives of the council of ministers. But that, does not just define it. The orthodoxy of the rule of law presumes that you have an illiterate population which can go to court. You have a justice system where the courts are manned by clearly qualified attorneys and that it has, it's accessible to every human being in any nation which is not the case within the African context in, in many places, even the most developed uh, court systems in, in, in Africa. So when we talk about the rule of law, it is a rule of law basically for the government, for the executive. It's a rule of law for the powerful people who can use the power of the judiciary 
to implement whatever they want. And certainly in the African case, the rule of law is closely tied to corruption and corrupt practices within the state, where the state is immune from any forms of the rule of law. And they will always create legal regimes to append the law or to throw it on the side so that they can do whatever they want. Of course, you know, there is a famous saying where uh, the state has the monopoly of violence over its citizens. But that amount of violence that we see in Africa exercised by the state is not proportional to what is written in the constitution or written in the legislated acts. And you can see that we still have a lot of fighting going on in different parts of Africa. Uh, people are disappointed. And in fact, as a matter of choice, most military coups, 110 that I have described in, in, my, in my other book, could it have been supported by the population. Even recently, we've seen the coups in Africa that happened over the last three months had had civic support because the executive refused to listen to the people who supposedly elected them into the office. So the rule of law is uh, some kind of a quandary that you cannot explain with the, within the African context. When, and when you go to even the developed nations, they have ways and means of bending the rule of law to only benefit the powerful politically and financially. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. It's good that you also made mention of that to help people understand that um, when we are talking of the law, it's not uh, um, be it all. It's not that it is finished. It's an experiment that is still ongoing. And of course, the one we have in Africa seems to be a little funny, like you have just described, you know? So um, we can cite case after case in Africa, you know, where it is very difficult to bend the law for the interest of the people, but it is very, very easy to bend it for the interest of, of the of those who are, who are ruling would make it uh, easy to to actually abuse the people. Uh, to that point, I'm trying to wonder, the law that we have there in Africa, because I know you you, you have made mention of it that there are laws that, uh, that are coming from outside, no? because they, it's not like the local people were sort of consulted to see how they can be governed. No? Because currently, we are talking also with traditional rulers in Africa to try and understand. Let's purge ourselves. Let's try to understand the system that we are even into. Because we can see that the elected officials have failed us. But we didn't just start with the elected officials. For example, Nigeria is celebrating 61 years of independence. That is, that is the history of Nigeria as amalgamated since 1914. But that is not the history of the people that made up Nigeria. We've been living for thousands of years. If we are having trouble, we're continuously having trouble, we try this little work, let's try something, let's try to ask ourselves, are there other ways that this thing can function? So where I'm actually going with this is, the law that we have that is operating in Africa, is it according to how you have described it? Or they are just laws that are there to sort of favor the colonialists so that when they were leaving Africa, they sort of left people there to continue to represent them. In this case, it becomes very easy for them to do what they have always done. But to do what the people want to be done according to the law, it is difficult. The laws that we have in Africa, 
are they based on the African experience, based on the people, the uh, what the people want, or based on some few individual for them to be able to run the system for some other persons? That is what I'm trying to understand. Well, you see, the legal regimes in Africa, the modern legal regimes, are the ones that have been written or copied from colonial powers. Um, basically, the sense of the law, uh, for example, if you see the constitution of San Marino, which is, I think, having an election very soon, is uh, considered to be the oldest constitution. And then you have the UN, the US constitution, which um, informed, of course, the United Nations chapter in terms of its Bill of Rights. Uh, so these legal regimes are carbon copy of developed nations. But the problem with this is that it didn't take into account the social anthropological basis of lawmaking. And this debate has been going on for a long period of time. In fact, the lawyers might not like it that the fact that you have um, sociological information coming in there, but uh, there are also lawyers, uh, very bright lawyers who are advocating for changing the legal regimes uh, within, within Africa. Take democracy, for example. The only thing that we exercise in Africa as a democracy are elections. You don't talk about civic education. You don't talk about the development of a political culture that the democracy requires. And also we don't have the requisite basis to be able to implement this. So what you see is we always have regular elections and the incumbents which have tremendous amount of resources, government funds, government vehicles, government offices, they control literally everything where they deny the opposition any form of participation, where the opposition is completely bankrupt to a point where they don't have any resources to even go and campaign. And this kind of democracy is being parachuted from the West into African communities. And nobody is talking about the kind of political culture development that's necessary for democracy to happen. Whether we like it or not, we have we had had forms of democracy in Africa, where you have egalitarian societies who manage their own affairs through their own legal regimes. But we have had also kingdoms that were very brutal in, in, a, in our history. So if we're going to emerge into the 21st century and accept what has become a global governance style called democracy, especially after the end of the Cold War. Uh, in fact, some American authors had had the audacity to say the, to call it the end of history, that we're not going to live in any ideological world in, anymore. And therefore, if that is the case, then we have to have the fundamental basis for democracy to happen to, to all people. But African leaders and political pundits and the elite are using any part of democracy as a vehicle for them to be in the seat of government. And of course, the international community would always demand that elections have to be undertaken on time, 
election observers will all will always come, but behind the scenes, you don't even know what really happens. Ruling parties in Africa have been seen to distribute the voting cards themselves to those people who are going to vote for them. We've seen ruling parties that have denied economic benefits to populations they believe they will not vote for them. And therefore, with this kind of intimidation and um, voting tactics, you cannot say everything is free and fair. Some countries have emerged from this, but very often what's really happening in the African context is when you have a corrupt regime, people hate them so much that eventually they're going to, they go to vote them out. They're not voting for the economic, social, and political policies of even the opposition that's coming in into government. They're voting to get the existing incumbent out. So this is not also a unique African quality. We've seen populists in Europe who've been jumping on immigration policies, on terrorism policies, especially after the Syrian war, where millions of Syrians went into Europe, where countries like Hungary and Poland saw their population being overwhelmed with other forms of religion, since they consider themselves as a religious state and not secular secular state. And therefore, when you, when you look at this, this is a global phenomenon and much of the writing on democracy is um, about democracy renewal, uh, not democracy's progress, because democracy has been in, in a decline uh, the past, let's say, 20, 25 years. And therefore, within the African context, what is really important for intellectuals who are dealing with this, uh, sociologists, anthropologists, economists, political scientists, international relations professionals, all this must come together to sort of see what are the determining factors to develop democracy in a, in a given community, in a given society. And then of course, what are the best practices we can take from the global world constitutions and laws. If you see, for example, the laws on counterterrorism that are coming up in Africa and elsewhere, they're being used to demonize the opposition, to demonize civil society, and to demonize professional associations. And therefore, this kind of laws cannot be productive to, to society itself. And we have to be extremely careful in coming up with this when we have a general law enforcement that has been instituted in any given nation, is there any need for a law on counterterrorism? Counterterrorism is not a special crime that has unique facets that, that needs a specific law for itself. The country's constitution in the Bill of Rights, the state has the mandate to protect its own people, to protect its borders, and to ensure human security. And therefore, these laws could be enshrined within the existing laws of, of the continent. But unfortunately, we have laws on terror that are being used to demonize the opposition, to demonize civil society and the intellectuals. And therefore, it becomes very difficult to understand that this kind of law should be more productive to the buildup of democracy in Africa. In fact, there are 
some instance where people are quoting countries in the Far East Asia where they don't have democracy per se, although some countries claim they are more democratic than the West, but they're looking at a kind of benevolent dictatorship that brought Singapore to, 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 to be an economic powerhouse uh, that brought Vietnam from its long war out and of course it's an economic powerhouse now. China is an economic powerhouse. So the debate is while Western democracy would want you to have elections without the necessary preparation of the continent, including civic education, voter education and other forms of development where people can judge candidates that they're going to elect in terms of the economic, social and political benefits they're going to bring to society. But uh, what's really happening is uh, people are threatened by the fact that they can have a regime that's going to hurt them more. Most of Africans have little to do with the state. Frankly, they would want, in fact, to be forgotten by the state completely because what they get from the state is not good news. And in some cases now, this kind of civic agents that you have, have turned themselves into guerrilla fighters. These guerrilla fighters have taken government positions eventually, just to repeat what the previous governments have been doing. Um, I remember a good friend of mine who is not here with us now, Claude Ake, a Nigerian intellectual, has written so profusely about this, where military coup d'etats and guerrilla fighters have become much worse than the post-colonial leadership in Africa that they oversaw. And therefore, when we talk about democracy, really Africa has to, to, to debate this within the African Union on what is necessary to be undertaken in terms of education, in general, education of the youth. Now the issue becomes, unemployment is a very serious issue in Africa. So every politician will tell you, no, I'll create all kinds of jobs. A politician will come and say, I'll solve that problem. A politician will say, I'll come and destroy corruption completely and I'll have a country that's free of corruption. But these same people come, take power, and eventually become the same as the previous regime. And therefore, it's very important that uh, we educate our, our people. Now that we have you know, borders that have been accepted after the Second World War, uh, we have no other choice. We have these countries that we call our, our own countries in Africa. And therefore, within these borders, what is very important is to undertake serious studies on how democracy could be installed in Africa the way Africans want it, the way the communities want it, the way it benefits the communities, and not as a vehicle for people to stay in power for three, four decades. That's what we've seen in Africa, um, where they have stayed too long uh, through elections. And therefore, when we talk about the rule of law, when we talk about the democracy, when we talk about the fundamental human rights of the African population, we're talking about a few elite groups that are the ones that are going to benefit from this from the system and not the majority of the population.
we have seen, for example, DRC probably has uh, close to $24 trillion of worth of minerals. But this is one of the poorest countries in the world. Why is this happening? DRC went into this mess under Mobutu Seko, and then it was replaced by different regimes. And yet, even the Inca Dam, which is supposed to produce more than 50,000 megawatts of electricity that can technically supply the whole continent the way it is right now, they, they can't even build one dam when they have this kind of resources. But who benefits from the diamonds, coltan, uranium, and other things that uh, we have in the DRC? Well, the uranium, the first uranium that was used from DRC was to make the atom bomb. The diamonds, uh, coltan, which is part and parcel of the um, electronic industry, is being taken out. So somebody is benefiting at the cost of the Zairean people, the Congo people. And this is a very important issue for me because I've been to the Great Lakes region of Africa, very rich in resources, like you have Central African Republic with similar resources. You have Cameroon with similar resources. You have, well, all, all, most countries have oil resources, other kinds of minerals, agricultural lands, and water, which is now a very rare commodity globally. But the point is, if you see, if you've seen Al Jazeera's Frank Africa program on how foreigners interfere in African government governance, on how they get African leaders to be elected. This is very telling. It comes from the horse mouths. These are French ministers, ex-French ministers, talking to Al Jazeera on how they were undertaking kudetas and counter kudetas in Africa. What I think the African Union has failed miserably is, since it's a club of African leaders, they only have rules and declarations that would only protect the existing government. For example, military coups are not allowed. Uh, you may know that Guinea now has been suspended from its membership in the African Union. And um, they always say, of course, you have to have a civilian government within a certain period of time. But what kind of civilian government do you get? The one we have in Sudan, where there is a kind of a, a hybrid military civil government, where the military has the top-notch posts and the prime minister is there only as um, a minister of economy, literally. Everything else is taken care of by the, by, by, by the military. After 30 years of uh, Bashir's rule, this is not what the people of Sudan deserve, and this is not what they died for when they tried to remove al-Bashir. So I can give you stories like this that go on forever in each country in Africa where we have such problems. And of course, these governments are so corrupt that our poverty is not because we don't have resources or as one American president said that we are very lazy to work, but we work hard, we have the resources, but somebody else takes it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you very much for that.
uh, and and of course, if we were to uh, because for example, there are there are a few things I was reflecting about when you were explaining on talking about the, the fact that we have not talked about education, educated masses, but want to run a democracy. What kind of democracy do we even want to run in the continent if the people are not educated to even understand their 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 part? Because democracy is going to be a kind of a bargain. I elect you to represent me. But what if if I do not if I'm not enlightened enough to know that I'm electing you, that I'm giving you part of my power to do something for me? Because if I don't know, it appears that you are doing me a favor. And in this case, you can do whatever you like because you are just doing me a favor. Okay, fine. Most of the laws that we have in Africa are obviously borrowed from outside. And this is evident because we look at, like I was saying before, it is very difficult to change this law when it is in the interest of the people. But when it is for the interest of the metropole, the multinational and the government, it's very easy for them to manipulate it. They take away the land from the people legally. They abuse the people legally because they are interpreting their own law. System after system of abuse of the people and it's continuously getting going worse every day. How can we get out of this trap legally? <clears throat> well, you, you see, the point is things are changing now because of the expansion of educational institutions in some countries. Uh, once young people are educated at any level, even if they're completing high school, then the awareness they have about their governments is very clear. They understand it very clearly. The second thing is the proliferation of the social media today is bringing information to the hands of young people. And of course, uh, with all kinds of bad issues coming in into social media, and of course, uh, if we've seen the Arab Spring, for example, the Afro-Arab Spring in Northern Africa, it was uh, social media that had a very clear role in getting young people to come out and demonstrate against their governments. But I think we have an opportunity now to use the social media and formal educational institutions to be able to teach our young people. And I think this has to do with the responsibility of the incumbents in Africa, whether they want to do that. Most of them, they want to put their children when they die. Uh, most of them, they want to put their own friends when they go out of office. Because the biggest fear of African leaders is once they leave office, then all the Pandora's box opens, uh, skeletons in the cupboard are out. And therefore, they don't want to be dragged into courts. And um, they've seen what happened to Gaddafi. They've seen what happened to Mubarak. They've seen what ha what's happening to al-Bashir right now. So all of them would want even to protect their future, even after they die, to protect their families. Uh, the other good news is that internationally now, they cannot loot Africa and put their money in Western banks anymore. Uh, probably they might go to the eastern side now that uh, the Western governments are strictly following uh, money laundering and stolen money, illicit, illicit financial flows. But the fact that the youth are now demonstrating more often 
they're showing their support to regime change of any form, uh, anything but the existing government. That's their uh, motto. I'm hoping that a new troop of African leaders would come into the forefront, surviving in an African environment, legacy. I mean, how many African leaders do we talk about their legacy of founding a continent or a country that has been very successful? Not many. Now, the only example we have is uh, Nelson Mandela in South Africa. He was there for one term. He talked about tools to power. He talked about the need to promote every South African. He maintained the economic health of that nation by getting all races in South Africa to work together. But if you go to other places, even the Imo Ibrahim Foundation, I think it has given up on awarding African leaders who left a good legacy because they couldn't find one. And therefore it's very important that the young group of leaders that are coming in Africa now understand this very clearly and that they cannot lose their countries anymore and hide somewhere in the West. Europe has been the main destination for them. Middle East has been also been a destination for them. But now it's becoming increasingly difficult for these countries to be able to accept tyrants that have, that, that, have, that, that have killed their own people, that have started wars in different parts of Africa, that have looted the mineral gains of uh, every country. And frankly, the money that's being stolen out of Africa, I don't think our leaders give much of it because it is the middlemen and the destination that gets, that gets all the money. What the DRC sends out is raw diamonds. These diamonds have to be cut, polished, put into jewelry so that they could go into the market. It is the end product that's earning, that's, that, that's really gaining the money and not the raw material that goes out. So I think we need to have leaders that can understand this and the young breed of leaders that are coming in Africa now, I'm hoping will do that. And um, of course, we still have leaders that have overstayed their welcome in many parts of Africa, but these have been supported again by foreign powers who intimidate local populations. Look, for example, in the case of Mali, where uh, we have incessant fighting. Mali was the first country in Africa after the fall of the Berlin Wall that successfully transited into democracy. Uh, countries like Ghana have shown what you call the two turnover test in a democracy, in elections, where an opposition, a civilian opposition, has taken power from another civilian government. But that has become a rarity. Almost 31 in countries in Africa have political parties that are leading them since independence. And this becomes a very troubling situation. If you see parties like Chama, Chama Kunduzi in Tanzania, the ANC in South Africa, the EPRF in Ethiopia, which, has been, which is being replaced now, these are parties 
that have taken part as a result of independence of the countries or as a result of military gains by opposition guerrilla forces. But in and a situation too, like that, in a situation like that, how do you reform? How do you change the law? Because you are the one that is oppressing the people. How do you make law that is going to favor the people? It becomes difficult in that case. But anyway, now I'm trying to understand, is there any situation in Africa where some of these laws have been changed to favor their people? In the exception, of course, um, uh, Mugabe, in Zimbabwe of their, of their land reform. Is there any attempt even of some country that are trying, because every, all of us cannot just be blind. There must be someone who wants to see or who is seeing somehow, who is making an attempt to change some of this law to favor them. Are there some evidence, that, are there some examples that we can, we can see in Africa, some countries? Well, I don't know of any one country that has done. In fact, if you, if you see at, at uh, the Anglo from Africa, almost all the judges, even their uniforms are, are, are like the um, UK judge, you know, and uh, even the procedures themselves, the, the way the legal regimes are written, uh, the way people are presented to courts and everything has not changed. Of course, you know, there have been some efforts to, to do that in some countries, but I haven't seen that. Much of this change must come from the population. You have to have plaintiffs in civil society who would initiate this kind of process and make sure that the populations, their constituents understand it so that they can demand it. When they are choosing, for example, during elections, they have to elect people who are going to go into the houses of parliament that have this kind of awareness and that have the ability to do this. So that change has to come from the internal side. It cannot come from, from above. There is no question about it. Like the transition we saw in the 1990s after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Africa has changed completely. Countries like, uh, countries like Zambia were a success story. But what happened only to, to be replaced by corrupt people who were not very popular with their uh, constituencies. And therefore, it's very important that the opposition, civil society, and the media would have tremendous amount of leverage in educating citizens so that they can demand it. It's not a question of asking the government to give them a better law, but they can demand a serious revision of the legal regimes with the participation of the local people. Uh, I think one of the issues that has made China with its one billion plus people and heavy economy is the fact that under the Communist Party, every person has a say in any policy. Every draft policy is sent to the local community to be able to be debated before it comes. Of course, they cannot touch the power of the Communist Party, but definitely within three decades, China has become the second most powerful economy in the world. It has taken almost three centuries for the West to be, to be able to get here. But in terms of technological development and economic development, China has, has achieved this because the kind of motivation now that exists within the population 
to be mobilized to work, to produce, and to excel is the fact that their policy stances are now based on really on the people themselves. They declared a poverty-free China, China just three months ago. Now, if you see the world poverty statistics, it's because of China that we say the world is less poor today than it was before, because China has taken out over a billion people out of poverty. So it is a kind of a combination, a synergy between the ruling class and the ruled class on how they can negotiate to bring this kind of transformation. And of course, at the end of the day, what people want is the freedom to have to choose their work, the freedom to have the property they amass during their economic lifetime. And of course, entrepreneurship rights to be able to produce, to be able to participate in the market and to be able to innovate. Within the African context now, we see a lot of startups coming, especially in South Africa, Nigeria, Senegal, and other countries. But these startups are not supported by, by the law. When I say the law, it's also the function, the activity of the law that's very important. Are the banks, for example, allowed to lend money to startups? Or do startups have to go outside Africa to get finance to be able to do what they're doing here. Some of them have become unicorns going over a billion dollars in terms of their capital. But the point is local banking facilities in Africa have become prime lenders of the government because they buy treasury bills, they get good interests out of this, and they become literally a second central bank for the government rather than banks that are going to provide entrepreneurs with the resource to be able to grow and flourish. And I think there is this hidden motive that uh, most people have written about, is that an educated population, an active population, and a politically sensitive civil society would be dangerous for the incumbent, and therefore suppressing education and other forms of human development initiatives might be a kind of an agenda for incumbents in Africa. And therefore, it is people themselves using social media, the broader media, educational facilities, and civil society activists who would eventually bring in people to say no to certain kinds of legal regimes, to say no to corruption, for example. And whenever we hear about corruption in Africa, it's high-level corruption that um, never gets anywhere. Nothing has been taken to court, except right. on the other side. <laughs> I, I like the argument of corruption, though, in that um, since we are talking about law, of course, it is very relevant, the, 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 the topic on corruption. And since we are beginning to see now, because from where we are looking at the argument, it appears that there is somebody that is sort of favoring this situation that is happening in Africa, like a, almost like a kind of a shadow government, no? Some people are somewhere uh, are just benefiting from what is happening in Africa, irrespective of the people that are dying. Those who are, they don't care about it. Because if we talk of empowering the people, we, who is it going to favor? If we talk of educating the African masses, who is it going to favor? 
maybe let's try to understand it from from that point of view also because are we saying that this few leader because there are very few actually in africa that are in charge of african powers and they have remained these same people whether in the military or in politics they for example in nigeria no we would usually say that the people that were in charge of the Nigeria of the Nigeria uh, government, they were mainly military. But they left, they changed their uniform and they become civilian. They are the same people that we are still voting into office. Nothing have happened. They, they haven't gone anywhere. You know, the, the question, what I'm trying to say is that is it that these people are just wicked or because they are trying to respect order that is coming from above? I'm not able to understand it. Is it out of wickedness on their part that they refuse to develop their people? For example, they refuse to uh, develop light in Nigeria. They just refuse to do it, not because they cannot do it. Is it out of wickedness on the part of the few leaders in Africa or because they are responding to a higher power overseas? Well, you see, the problem is the genesis of uh, leadership in Africa. You know, some of our post-colonial leaders actually were also members of parliament of uh, colonial powers. They were in parliament in colonial powers. They were even ministers of uh, colonial powers uh, in France. And uh, then of course we had very successful, almost 110 military coups and counter coups uh, that decimated the first crop of African leaders after independence. And then, of course, in 1991, there was a movement towards wider uh, elections within Africa. And elections were seen as an end of them in themselves. They were not, elections are a very important part of democracy, but they are not the entire democracy. And therefore, what the West tried to impose using its own um, multilateral institutions that are providing funding for African governments is that elections became the center point of everything that democracy is. The issue of educating the public, the issue of supporting civil society was never there. Agreements are always written between these international financial institutions and the bilateral assistance between governments and these institutions, or between governments and governments on the other side. And therefore, the incentive for promoting civil society has been very, very small. And African countries have, they always revert to this issue of this thin veneer of sovereignty, where they say we're a sovereign nation and they cannot interfere in our uh, sovereign issues. Uh, an attempt in 2005 by the United Nations to proclaim the responsibility to protect when a government is abusing its own population, Security Council would give the right of neighboring states or even the UN peacekeeping to be able to interfere in that. But it has become a very a rarity rather than a common thing. And therefore, I think the most important thing, as I said earlier, is we have to have a civil society that is well informed, a civil society that has access to the economy, an economic society that is dealing in the economy of the country, not just as a number to calculate the GDP of a nation, but this economic society would entail having young people, young people who are part and parcel of the economy, 
who are part and parcel of the contribution to the revenue the state is collecting to be able to harass its own people. And therefore, what we see is, if you want to control corruption, for example, everybody gets away with it. You remember the famous Halliburton case in Nigeria where they were going to build a kind of a liquefied gas plant. On the other side, in the United States, $1.8 billion have been penalized by US courts on the people who have been acting on the US side, with even prison sentence for some CEOs. But on the African side, nothing has happened. So it is, we need to have a strong civil society. The new strategy of African leaders is to divide and rule society through ethnic lines. And therefore, we have this persistent problem for you, what you see in Ethiopia here now, uh, what you see in, in Nigeria between the Hausa, the Igbo, and the Yoruba, what you see in different kinds of countries, Cameroon between the Anglophone and the Francophone, uh, DRC, the Rwanda, Burundi, DRC between the Hutus and Tutsis. So, what you see, this is a design, a governance design that is permanently fixed in society so that society would not, nor, never have harmony that would lead to a common objective on what kind of government they would require. So it's going to take time, but it will happen. It's going to take time. Now, as I said, with social media penetrating much of Africa and with initiatives from Google and Facebook where they want to make it available to every African youth, they might have their own uh, business objectives, but definitely the collateral impact would be more young people would have more information in their hands to be able to pressure their governments to transform the kind of governance they have. Another thing um, I was just also looking at just now was um, it's about land. Uh, because when we say, when we were explaining before, just in the initial of this uh, podcast, you may mention the fact that uh, uh, a lot of uh, people have been dispossessed of their land. And of course, we are talking within the, the framework of the law, because for, as far as the government is concerned, this is done legally, no? Because the, most of, in many parts of Africa, lands have been reformed in the sense that they are the property, the land. Even the people are property of the government, so they can do whatever they like, you know? So in terms of compensation, that is actually very little that is given to the people who are being dispossessed of the land. And of course, this has to do also with the resources, no? Either the government be in charge of everything, they decide what happened. And if we were to look at it, let's pretend that we want to take a different lens to look at the case. Say maybe this is a colonial era. It is very obvious, it is very clear that this one was serving the interest of another person. It was for the purpose of administration. Because if I give you, if I align you as the owner of the land, how it means that. Those who are running the states, who are running the, the different government, need to sort of go and negotiate with you. But if the land belongs to them, they, they can do whatever they like. So, what does the law actually say about the land and the people? If we cannot find any explanation in our current law, they will go to find out in our traditional law. What does the law say about the land and the people? Who gave the state the right to dispossess the people of the land? Well, you see, in, <laughs> in fact, uh, 
in the Ethiopian case, we have a unique case where the land belongs to the people actually in the constitution. But when you say land belongs to people, it means it's state ownership. So the state can, the state can take your land away anytime with or without compensation. And in fact, this has led to lots of rights that upset the uh, party about uh, six years ago. The expansion of Addis Ababa as a city where compensation paid to farmers was literally nothing. And also even compensation paid to farmers all over Africa ends up in the hands of the political elites and nothing goes down to, to them. Even if there is any form of compensation that's being paid by the international organizations funding like dams, for example, we have the World Bank, the African Development Bank, bilateral assistance or even investors. So the, 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 the point is when you have greed to develop to a level of what you call chronic capitalism, then the only way out is for civil society to be able to act on its own government. Nothing can, can, can be parachute from outside to be able to change this international laws, legal regimes, international humanitarian laws, international human rights laws, all this might help. But definitely what you need is a conscious citizenry that would be forcing governments to change. That would be electing young people that can serve the people and their country and not themselves. I mean, how many African leaders that we've seen have won the Mo Ibrahim Pride, I think, so out of desperation that Mo Ibrahim tried to give $5 million to every African leader who has successfully led a democratic regime. But the problem is, in some countries, we have an electorate that is very conscious of what they're electing. And this is not proportional to the amount of education that exists there. Uh, if we look at Nigeria, where we have high level of education among the population, that's where we have permanent problems. The Nigerian security apparatus cannot even, you know, maintain the safety of kids in schools. And what does this tell you? You have the elite at the top that are concerned only about their own benefits. And the story you have down there is not of concern, of great concern to them. In fact, they are asking foreign governments to help them with this uh, rackets of uh, what they call terrorists and people who are asking for ransom you know, by kidnapping kids. This is unheard of uh, story in, in, in Africa and it's, it's news. But foreign interests plus elite interests locally Look at Somalia now, when we've said that it's going to be stable, now we have another problem coming, a fight between the elites, which would again put the country into a collapsed state status, unless something done, is done very, very soon by this elite. And therefore, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to predict this. Countries like South Africa, wealthy countries with tremendous amount of mineral resources and uh, huge production capacity, and yet the African population there is complaining about 
their livelihoods, about the land they never had, or that's been taken away from them and that they, they want to reclaim. So these are issues at the bigger picture that we see beyond having a participatory governance in African regimes. There is progress, we cannot deny this, but that progress is coming very, very slowly from civil society and not from the governments themselves. So when you have these elections coming in a repeated manner, then I'm hoping that the young people, especially after the last 20 years when the education process has been expanding, the internet services have been expanding, people are, no, are now more aware of their rights, people are more aware of the international situation. And of course, the kind of trade wars that are emerging now between the East and the West, which is literally turning into a new Cold War, would make them aware what kind of governments they need to be able to stay afloat in the world economy, in a globalized world economy. So these startups that are coming up in Africa now are going to be the solution for this. These are the guys, these are the guys who are going to create entrepreneurs. People are going to emulate them. Kids have now a vision of what they can be looking at their elders who are doing this. So far, in most of Africa, government job was some kind of an elite job that everybody wanted. If you're not paid well, you can, you can steal money from the government or from the people that you administer. But the point now is people are becoming entrepreneurs thanks to the expansion of the internet, thanks to the expansion of telecom services. So my hope is that it wouldn't take a long time that has taken Africa since independence to have democratic states installed. It will be much, much faster. There will be opposition to this. There will be resistance from the powers to be, but definitely these young people are going to transform society once we know that they have access to different facilities. What are African governments doing now during elections? They shut down social media. They shut down international television stations. They shut down newspapers. They shut down the media completely. So there is no way information can be shared between the people and also information that comes from the huge African diaspora that's highly enlightened. Uh, imagine we have an African diaspora that can sell its skills to the economies in the West. We don't have that equal number of people within Africa itself that can sell their skills to the African economy. And therefore, the change, the diaspora is going to be a huge change agent. Of course, in some cases, they can be more negative, creating discord among different ethnic groups and populations. They can be the mouthpiece of incumbent regimes in Africa, but definitely the majority of information that's coming through the internet can be filtered out by the people who are receiving it to be able to use it to the best of the uh, development of good governance in Africa. All right, yeah, yeah, that is, that is, that is a hope and I believe so much, of course, the power the future belongs to the younger generation and if we are looking at the african diaspora that is that is that is where also the, the power is so uh, they must live up to their responsibility in taking up the fight to change the situation because uh, it is not it is not good 
it is not good the way it is. It is not favorable to those we left at home because no matter how comfortable you might be, even though really there is not so much comfort in, in the diaspora as it were, that is a, that is a semblance of it. Uh, if where you are coming from, there is fire there. Even if you are living in the comfort, you will not be you will not be enjoying it. All right. Another thing I also would like to understand from this uh, discussion is the consequences. Because if you make law and there are no consequences for the law, then those laws can easily be broken and nothing will happen. We started from, from the legal empowerment of the poor, no? How the poor can have access to justice. What if these poor do not have access to justice? Who are they going to cry out to? How can somebody intervene in their case? Say maybe, for example, the government decides to take the land that belongs to the people and these people are driven away without any compensation or for a variety of other things that the government decide to violate the rights of the people. And these people, of course, they cannot, they cannot fight the government. What can they do? The best thing is to talk about what they're doing now. You know, most guerrilla movements in Africa, most liberation movements or whatever, it's not liberation, uh, some kind of self-empowerment and self-determination comes as a result of this. You have activists who talk about it. They start recruiting people. It's very easy to buy arms in this world today, or it's very easy even to get access to them. There are sufficient benefactors who are ready to give you guns and bullets to destroy your own country around the world today. And therefore, that's why you see all these fights in Africa, because the legal regimes are not working, because the governance regimes are not properly working. When there was a hope that some tyrant is gone, like Mobutu Soko, then the country hasn't changed much. In reality, the DRC is still as obscure as, as it was under Mobutu Soko. And therefore, it's very important to look into how civil society reacts to this. You know, much of the conflicts that we see going on in Africa between communities is, of course, traditionally you had communities who were undertaking cattle wrestling, who were fighting for uh, water points, for grazing areas and stuff like this. But now what you see is organized military level, martial level, equipped guerrillas who are fighting their own governments. So what's the response of these governments? It's not negotiations. It's not talking and trying to find alternative conflict management systems, which have been the mainstay of uh, the African life even before organized governments, uh, donors and NGOs came to the scene. The point is they start buying weapons to fight their own guerrillas. Eventually they destroy the economy of the country. They destroy society completely. The social fabric in many African countries has been completely dismantled because of these conflicts. We have millions of people who have been displaced because of conflicts. In almost 20 countries, there have been active fighting that has created the displacement of millions of Africans. At one time, we had the highest number of refugees. And of course, now we have Pakistan and Afghanistan with a huge number of uh, refugees. But the point is, we go into these kind of conflicts and governments rarely understand the situation that these conflicts could go out of hand. 
and they could result in, in their replacements. Most of the governments that have been overthrown in Africa, like Mobutu Sese the RC is a good example, has been, you had guerrilla movements going on for a long period of time. In fact, at one time, uh, SADC had to put up a huge SADC force to be able to protect the integrity of the nation, per se, so that it doesn't fracture into small uh, phantom states, you know? So the, the point is, once civil society starts articulating its interests and the government understands that it's going to be a threat, the negotiations will, will happen between different groups. And when I say negotiations, this must be negotiations using professional mediators. It's not a question of sending, you know, religious fathers or um, elders to do the negotiation. But these negotiations must be structured in a way that civil society and the state would have a working relationship on how to trans transform the regime into a more acceptable, fuller organization than it's now. Otherwise, it becomes so violent eventually that it becomes the fight between an elite leader that brings, she can bring her own ethnic groups or her own interested groups and try to hold on to power at, 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 at any cost. And you've seen what, what happened to Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Ivory Coast. There was this big issue between President Bagbo and President Ouattara. Now Bagbo officially was removed from power by foreign powers. Then he was taken to the International Criminal Court. After almost a decade, the International Criminal Court has said he's free. He's free to go. Now he's back in Cote d'Ivoire. But how did we get into this in the first place? Where did you go? Where did you know the African wisdom of negotiating through elders, negotiating through mediators? Where did it go? How did we arrive at a level where elite groups can literally destroy the lives of hundreds of thousands of people? The livelihood of millions is destroyed before anyone of them can win. Of course, nobody wins in a war. What you have is what you call a pirate victory, you know, where eventually what, what you've left after a war is a destroyed economy and a social fabric that has been torn apart. And therefore, it's very important to work on civil society. I think the media has a very strong role in this. The investigative media can investigate stories in different parts of Africa and make it available to its own citizens. This would help citizens to have any inkling of a democratic election would bring down governments like it has done in Zambia. I think this is a great victory for Zambians because the government has been corrupt. The government, everybody was fed up with it. And finally, the people chose the opposition. The opposition guy, has been trying almost four or five times. He didn't have a leeway to go in. But now, finally, he got away. And in fact, I, I heard him talking to the United Nations General Assembly now. So this is the kind of lesson and process we have to go through. We cannot do it overnight. But through massive education on the media, through civil society organization, 
And of course, the, the role of organized institutions like religious institutions will have a lot of uh, leeway in this, but they have to stick to human security, not their religious agenda. Because uh, I've seen in Africa where uh, I think the famous, uh, Desmond, the famous saying by Desmond Tutu is, when the colonials uh, came, they gave us the Bible, they, they told us to close our eyes to pray, and when we opened our eyes, we had the Bible, we had the land, you know. So it's uh our eyes are still closed today. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's uh so it's uh it's 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 going to be a long process, and frankly, we can talk about this in another session, uh, because we, there are research protocols that are designed for this that will help governments to undertake such a process. All right, thank you very much. And we are moving towards the end of it, so it will soon be it will soon be over. Okay. Before we get to the conclusion, uh, I remember we made mention of uh, the ethnic group being used as uh, as a divisive uh, means to divide the people and rule and rule over them. Of course, this is a strategy that were able used by by the colonialists and up to date. Okay, I understand. Even before in pre-colonial Africa, there have also been some conflict among this ethnic group because we are people, we are human beings. Sometimes we make peace, sometimes we make war. But okay, we, we are still living, we are still here. Now, is it not possible that we can find a common ground so that instead of always looking at the elected official, the corrupt elected official, that from our cultural background, from our ethnic line, we can find a common ground to dialogue, to work together? Because we have been here for a long time, like I always say. Our life did not start with the with the republic uh, that we have, with the Nigeria, for example, in 1916. We have been here for a number of years, for thousands of years. Can't we find a common ground to defend our common interests as a people? Well, that, that, that's a problem, you know. For one, you know, uh, I don't think illiteracy would define it because every African community has survived, of course, uh, through the millennia without the support of anyone. As a matter of fact, what slave traders and colonial powers have done is to destroy the crop of young Africans who would have transformed this continent. But the point now is, with the modern emergence of uh, political systems, especially after the Second World War, where the borders of countries have been delimited, where countries have achieved what you call regime recognition by the international community, specifically by the United Nations. What has been done is we've left our African rural population illiterate in quote unquote, illiterate in a sense that it doesn't mean that they don't have knowledge, but they lack the particular knowledge in terms of how government is elected, how government is instituted, and what government is supposed to do. And therefore, that's what I go back again into the role of civil society, into the role of the media, into the role of young startups and entrepreneurs who can educate people, you know, through either contact awareness where people see what they're doing or through educational awareness where people have to be part and parcel of a certain training session or go through an experience 
to be able to appreciate this. And therefore, as I mentioned, you know, the issue of Ghana and Zambia, where there have been lots of achievements in, the, in their democracy projects. Of course, uh, there are habits that die hard and you don't know what's really happening in communities where <clears throat> state power has not been regulated to a point where you have the definition of the three coordinates of power between the parliament, the judiciary and the executive, the role of the armed forces, uh, anything can happen. Mali has been a beacon of democracy for some time after 1991, because we can see what kind of military coups have been taking place in Mali. And therefore it's important to look into this and see how we can push this forward. Uh, Guinea, for example, after Secretary and uh, all kinds of coups and counter coups, there was a very good effort by the population, by the elites and by the international community uh, to bring in the government that has been overturned right now. But President Conde wanted to continue a spectrum against the constitution by undertaking a referendum. And of course, it's very easy to say we have a referendum. Uh, it's only the government that's counting, and therefore it's very difficult to see, even if the people want a certain term for a person who is uh, that, that old and probably who has to retire and share his experience with the population. Therefore, it's important that civil society has to be strong enough. Much of what has been done so far in Africa, the kind of transformation we see from single party dictatorships into even choosing different people within the same party has been done by civil society groups and organized forces. The military, the church have been very active in Africa, the universities, uh, civil, society or civil society organizations that have been uh, working under, under the table literally because they're not allowed formally. And exactly you know, what most African governments are doing is to shut down non-governmental organizations because they think they are a threat in trying to educate the public and uh, become <clears throat> part and parcel of the opposition. So the only way to do it is to continue using social media like you're doing now uh, with your podcast, for example, you're going to reach many people and these people will reach other people. And now it takes probably a split of a second to share a video from one person to another person, or you can put it in Telegram where 200,000 people will see it at the same time. So th these are the issues that are important. I think the role of the media in, Af in Africa has been really diminished. And we don't have good continental media organizations to be able to promote <clears throat> media rights. And media itself, in many cases, has shown that it's part and parcel of the problem and not the solution. If we see the Rwanda genocide, it was the radio that had been used to decimate 800,000 to 1 million people. But definitely there are better sides for the media. These are unique cases, small cases, where we see the media has been part and parcel of tyrants. But the media can be a source of education because in the media, you're not just delivering crude education, you're delivering entertainment, you're delivering stories, you're delivering 
people who are making transformation on a daily on a daily basis. So these are the things that we need to look into uh, very aggressively in this continent. And I think the African academia has a responsibility to undertake this. Much of what we've been doing is to go and run away to international organizations or to be able to go and work in the West uh, initially as uh, asylum seekers. And then of course you get the uh, passport of that country where you got the asylum. And then you become a diaspora where you can contribute a lot uh, in terms of sending remittances, but also you can contribute a lot by educating the public in Africa. In some cases, we see the diaspora becomes counterproductive in supporting the processes that are going on in Africa, which leads to immense conflicts. And therefore, you need you know, a continental movement, much like what the African leaders did to liberate Africa. I'm sitting in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, in my country, where the Organization of African Unity has been founded. These people had a vision. They wanted one Africa. People like, people like Nkrumah wanted one currency, one African nation, one African legal regime to take out Africans out of the complete misery of slavery, colonialism, and poverty. But we don't have many leaders of that kind of vision today in Africa. And those leaders, all of them have been hosted for not following their own vision that they set in the documents of the Organization of African Unity. And therefore, we need to pressure this. And the media has a huge role to play by undertaking investigations and providing the African population with investigative media. This is how the Arab Spring flourished. Eventually, of course, with the support of outsiders, the Arab Spring has been 10 years now. And you can say that the Arab Spring has changed now into an Arab winter, but definitely we have not removed the tyrants from that. So, but it's an exercise in, 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 in governmentality. This is this process, the young people will say no. What we see in Tunisia today is a unique situation where the president has suspended parliament and the institutions of government. And he's saying they're all corrupt. So there are some who support those who have been suspended and there are some who support uh, the president himself. It's this kind of probably non-violent negotiations that take place between these older people that will bring the young people to think of alternatives on what they can do. But these stories are everywhere in Africa. It's not just Tunisia, but I don't think we have the time to mention all of them. Uh, you see, there is something that I, that I really uh, find very interesting on, which is the fact that um, there are quality people in Africa, but these quality people never come to the position that they are supposed to be. Is that we have a word in Nigeria we call mumu, meaning almost like, like people that are too that are too poor to execute certain certain tasks, but that the ones that are giving the task. And those people, they come to speak for the whole people. And they, they make everybody appear as if everybody is stupid. I think this is what the error that democracy was supposed to correct, in that the people need to choose who to represent them. 
But how can you choose if you are not if you are not enlightened to even know the difference between A and B? Of course, A and B not just in the letter, but to really know what it what it means, no? Anyway, we already have spoken about this before. I just want to point out that actually I do think that there are some quality people in Africa. Say, for example, in Nigeria. Anytime I see the Nigeria president come to speak, the Nigeria president Buhari come to speak as the president of my country, I feel ashamed that this is who we have. That this is of all the more than 200 million in Nigeria, this is the best that Nigeria could be. This is what we are talking about. That this is not the best to speak for Nigeria at this time. We needed somebody who understands what is going on. And of course, to be able to get that, then of course, it, it, it comes to what you are talking about, the societal education, the responsibility of each and every one of us to contribute to the enlightenment so that some people that are in the dark can see the light. And of course, they have always used the law to make sure that everything works in their interest. And coming back to the law again, the legal regime. Because for example, in Nigeria, we have some lawyers that are very outspoken. Even in the time of the military regime, many of them have been outspoken. Some of them have been killed, we know. They have been outspoken about the rule of law, about the abuse of the, of the, of the legal system in Nigeria. Some of them have lost their pay with their life. So are there these intelligent lawyers who understand what is going on that are fighting to turn to make sure that things change? Of course, we are fighting a big machine. It's not going to be very easy. How can we have a legal system that works for the people, not just for these few individuals in power? How can we do that? Well, you know, you have several kinds of intellectuals and lawyers. You know, one is, of course, you have uh, uh, those who just do their job. Uh, period. You mentioned that Nigeria really deserve President Buhari. Uh, you, you might find a lot of Nigerians who not agree with you, but who also agree with you. The point is, you know, those who go into the corridors of power are people who don't really care about themselves. Frankly, they, they take any risks to be there. Decent people, God-fearing people, they don't want to take these risks. For one, you know, once you become the president or prime minister of a country, you're going to send your kids to war. They're going to die there. You have the monopoly of violence. You can imprison anyone that you want using the rule of law. You can kill anyone using the rule of law. And this, this has happened in Africa very often. This has happened also with the Western countries where they have been sending their children for wars they don't even understand in the first place. You know, the 9-11 attack by Al-Qaeda killed about 3,000 people in New York. But America lost more people probably in Afghanistan trying to go and find the killer, trying to shape up a society out of, out of Afghan society. Afghanistan is a society that has never been ruled by anybody since Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great. These are good fighters who have their own community norms that the international community can only negotiate with them and try to bring them to the norms of the 21st century. 
of course, within the limits of what is permitted within their religion. But the point that's uh, coming up now is decent people don't go there. If you're sending people, an army to kill your own people, if you're sending your own police to kill your own people, then how can a decent person go there? That's why the intellectuals who are supposed to generate human development, human security, and of course, national security for African countries are not there. Most of them have a background in the military where they have been trained to kill. That is basically their training and to save themselves. And therefore, these are the ones that always go into the leadership positions. And therefore, the transformation that you're looking for is to get people who have the vision, who can mobilize populations for the common good and the common will of the people. We've seen leaders in history who have done that. Uh, I think Gandhi is mentioned several times over uh, how he transformed India. And uh, of course, nothing has been for Gandhi himself. We've seen what he wore, we've seen what uh, life he, he led, but he liberated India. And also he has become an example for the world's biggest democracy in the, today. So many countries don't have this kind of leadership. In fact, you've seen the United States under President Trump. It went down literally in, in, in history to a point where uh, you know, a country has been run by on Twitter, you know. So these are issues that are very important to look in, in Africa where, you know, in the West, their challenge is not poverty. Their challenge is state power. Their challenge is more comfortable lives. Their challenge is how many stimulus packages people get out of the government. In Africa, the challenge we have is basic healthcare, basic food on the table, basic uh, housing. And of course, human security in its right form where people are protected from any kind of violence. That now includes climate change. Of course, people have to adapt to climate change and governments have to come with adaptation programs where these populations that are now affected by climate change would adapt in a different way by building a different kind of livelihood. And Africa is also in a transition. The fastest growing economies in the world in 2019, five out of 10 were in Africa. And therefore, this is good news, you see, where we are seeing some progress. But on that progress, we need a transformation. And I think Nigeria, you mentioned, is an important country for Africa. It's not only the most populous nation, but I think Nigeria has the most educated people, probably more than the combined Sub-Saharan Africa. And therefore, it's important that Nigeria takes the leadership in terms of economic development, in terms of governance development, in terms of international relations, and in terms of making sure that the people of Nigeria are happy with the kind of governance they have. Thank you very much, sir. All right, we have come to the conclusion of this conversation uh, today, and it has really been very interesting. We talked about law, of course, look at different angles of it and how um, the abuse of it has been uh, uh, very detrimental to our progress as a people. Um, yeah, it has, a lot of things are really involved in it. 
but there is an angle we didn't trade today which is which have to do with the foreign influence in how to maintain <laughs> crocodile law what is it that they have that they have them to maintain the system but it's okay that can be a conversation for another day so to conclude this conversation sir what would be um your final message to the people that have listened to this point of course we're always concluding with a positive note that we do hope we believe we do strongly believe that things are going to change of course they are not going to change by miracle they're going to change by our effort by our continuous and unrelated effort is going to change by this so what would be your conclusion well i think african intellectuals uh, african professional associations african civil society leaders I remember at one time we had uh, an organization called uh, FAVDO, Forum for African Voluntary Development Organizations, which was a network of about 10,000 civil society organizations around Africa. I frankly don't know what really happened to it now, but uh, I have even served in this uh, organization uh, as uh, a trustee. And uh, this, I think, uh, we had an office in Senegal uh, for this. Eventually, when uh, the donors stopped funding, I think it died, which uh, shows you that it was an it was not an initiative that's really coming inside from inside Africa. And therefore, this kind of networks are very important. And the problem even today is even the most important publications we have, you see, at the bottom or on the side that it has been funded by this organization or that organization in Europe or the US. Most of the democracy studies that we have in this content are funded by from outside. And there is very little interest to do this. But now that we have African rich people like uh, Dangote in uh, Nigeria, they should, they should have foundations that promote such an effort. Like Mo Ibrahim now has an institution doing this. But we need more of them. This is a continent of uh, almost 1 billion people or more. This is a continent uh, which has 2,000 languages, 2,000 cultures, probably 2,000 ethnic groups. And therefore, it's very important that, that we have this kind of institutions that really put pressure on states and promote civil society to a point where you have some kind of a peaceful transition, uh, a peaceful competition uh, for power among different uh, sectors of the African population. It's not just having people with the legacy of who they are, which party they come from, but people who can transform society. And we have this kind of historical precedence in Africa. So it's very important that we have this kind of African think tanks that make a network with civil society organizations to be able to start the very slow process, but sure process to achieve what you call democratic governance the way we define it. Democracy is defined in a simple way. It's the rule of the people by the people of the people. But the point that we see is European democracy, we have Christian Democrats, we have social Democrats, we have laissez-faire democracy in the United States. We have a communist party in China that's running a laissez-faire economy, literally. And therefore, when you talk about democracy, it should be the will of the people. And the will of the people means, it doesn't mean that the majority is going to decide to dominate the minority. That's where the republic comes in. 
where representatives ensure that the rights of the minority are respected according to a constitution that is written by the people themselves. And therefore, I think we should continue with this where we converge the media, continental media associations, continental think tanks, and continental civil society organizations to put pressure on African governments. This will have tremendous voice on a single country, for example, that is having a serious problem. And we have several countries in Africa that are having serious problems today. They can be a voice of reason for the people that are being subjected to harassment, wars, conflicts, and famine in different parts of Africa. Thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate the time and the contribution. Again, it has been really, really educating. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review Obehe podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehe Ewafo. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode.